the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. program. I'm back. My voice, as you can tell, is part way back. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, really whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I want to thank everybody for your prayers. I've been overwhelmed with email messages and and well wishes and people letting me know that they're praying for me. Um, boy, I'll tell you, I've been really sick. It just, it's what the flu B or RSV. But, I mean, I couldn't talk. I'm sorry. Uh, I couldn't talk for a week. And so I got back yesterday at church uh, for the first time. And I wanted to come back and do the show today as well. So uh, thank you for your patience and appreciate uh, all of your prayers and your concerns. Let me get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Our first one is from... Uh, no name, John. This one's from John. Um, hi, Pastor Ron, a well-known Christian podcaster. I'll leave the name out. Mentioned Malachi three ten in the context of blessings from God for us today. Does this apply to the church? The answer, John, is no. It does not. Now, I want to be clear. The principle applies to all believers uh, throughout the ages. Uh, this is. A word given to Malachi for Jews, it, it dealt with a very specific situation. They were taking care of their own homes, taking care of their own needs, and they were not uh, doing what the law required that they do to the Lord. And so Malachi warned them. He said, uh, and, and actually this is one of the only real tests in, in the scripture. He says, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I've drawn a couple of things. This is usually um, used by um, charismatic churches, prosperity churches, to try to make people feel really guilty about not giving to the Lord. In contrast, in the New Testament, we're not to give under compulsion, but we're to give generously, and we're to give hilariously, and we're to do that because of what God has done for us. 
a Christian should not need um, the kind of motivation, okay, well, if you do this, God will have to do this. And yet this is how Malachi 3.10 is often used. And it is a, a verse that is used, unfortunately, John, to manipulate people, again, to motivate by guilt uh, they're giving. And this simply is not a word that is at all for Christians. This was a very specific word at a very specific time written to Jews who were under the law. Now, I say this a lot on this program, John, but I'm going to say it again. If you look in the New Testament, apart from Jesus' ministry, he says, you tithe and it's right that you do so. Remember, Jesus' ministry was Jewish and the tithe, uh, they were under the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Um, and, and so it was appropriate when Jesus said it. But once we get uh, from the book of Acts forward in our New Testament, there's no mention at all of, of giving under compulsion or giving because we're under the law. I also want to say this, John. We who are believers, we who have received the grace of God, we have been abundantly blessed. We ought to give way, way more, way more generously than do people who, in fact, were compelled to give under the law. Grace does infinitely more than the law ever could. The law failed. Grace is God's answer to our failures. And we ought to then be the most generous people in the world. And sadly, John, um, way too many churches, we, we just think, well, we can commit people to a tithe. And then we who are church leaders, we don't have to trust God. So this is, I think, one of the the, the really horrible things that happens in the New Testament church. Um, this is just utter manipulation. So I hope that answers your question, John. It's not. Now, I also want to add this. The principle always works. I tell our church here all the time that motive is everything. And so the principle works. You can't outgive God. That's just who he is. God is is an infinite God. He loves us. He wants to bless us abundantly. But when being blessed by God becomes our motive for giving, then we sort of negate any blessings that we're going to get. And I know it works in a pyramid scheme. I know it works in marketing. I know it works in the world that we live in. But the reality is, is when you give everything to God, that's what Romans 12 says we should do. Offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That's the totality of who we are and what we have. Offer it to God. It is our reasonable service, the King James says. The NIV says it is our spiritual act or, or sincere act of worship. And when we give everything to God, then the reality is, and the principle works, that we simply cannot give God and we're going to live a life that's blessed. Now, that may be money, it may not be money, but the reality is, is God, we can't outgive him, but remember, remember, remember that motive is everything, and unfortunately, our motives are, do often, well, if I give God this, then he's going to have to give me that. That's That doesn't, and so whoever this well-known Christian podcaster is, um, um, Malachi 3.10 is being used incorrectly, and Christians are not under the law in that manner at all. Thank you, John. I appreciate the question very, very much. Here's a question from Chris. And Chris, I'm going to, I'm sorry, Rick. And Rick, I'm going to, this is the last question I'm going to answer from you. Um, we've answered your questions, and you don't seem to be interested in a reasonable hermeneutic, uh, so there's no point in talking, but I'm going to answer this question. Uh, he says, for clarification, we should not worship the Father on his appointed times or feasts, days that points to Messiah, but instead we're to worship on redeemed pagan holidays that is full of non-biblical tradition that points to the dying and resurrecting son. And I'm, I guess you mean S-O-N, although you wrote S-U-N. Um, let me stop there, and then I'll, I'll come back. Um, uh, Rick, we, the, the whole New Testament is about redemption. Uh, we worship Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, because it is the day that the church was born. It's the day Jesus was raised from the dead. It was a validation, the vindication of everything that we believe. 
And because of that, everything pagan is now redeemable. And that's what we've done with Christmas. That's what we've done with Easter. And there's nothing biblical or non-biblical. It is an opportunity. I want you to think about we got Christmas coming up. A week from today, the whole world is going to be thinking about Jesus Christ. Now they're going to be cursing him. Some others of us are going to be worshiping. But there's a day the whole world can't escape the presence of Jesus Christ. And we're to take that opportunity and run with it. And your indication that, that uh, because something I said that we are to worship the Father on the Old Testament feast days or festival days, those are pictures. You read the book of Hebrews. Just read it once. Just read it. They were pictures of that which is to come fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I have a picture of Paula in my home, Rick, and it's always been my favorite picture of her. Uh, she was very, very young. I mean, when I say always, I've had this picture for, for many, many decades. And and I look at that picture, and I think she is so beautiful. She is absolutely stunning. She She just lights up whatever room that picture is in. But wouldn't I be silly, instead of hugging Paula when she was actually there, to go in and hug that picture? Well, that's what you're doing when, in fact, you're insisting on worshiping the Old Testament festivals. Now, the rest of his thing, he's, um, um, he says, Please do not say that they are for the Jews, these festivals. They are God's days to his people, no matter what they are called. Honestly, I don't know if you care what the Bible says or just peddling Paul and Jesus love. I don't know what that even means. Um, or if a brother and his... But uh, if a brother sees another and sins, says nothing, he's guilty of his brother's sin. So I've said something. Good luck to you, Rabbi. Um, um, see, see, again, all Jewish. And Rick is not a Jew. Um, the, the, the one thing, a hermeneutic, uh, is really important. If you would just take enough time, enough concern, Rick, to buy a Bible a study book on hermeneutics, uh, you would understand. I want you to listen for just a moment because what this says is really, really important and I don't mean anything unkind by this, but Paul addresses people like you in First Timothy chapter 1. He says, Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. And that's what you've done, Rick. You've embraced pictures of Jesus and in the process you're discarding Jesus. And then here's what applies to you. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And then Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. But you've got to use it properly. You can't just throw it out there. So, Rick, I hope that makes sense to you. I'll, I'll just challenge you to get a book on hermeneutics and read it. But understand what you're reading, and the, 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 the founding principle is, to whom is God speaking? And over and over and over, you know, Rick, we are in the book of Leviticus on Wednesday nights. Say to the Israelites, God said to Moses, Moses, say to the Israelites. He didn't say to say to Christians uh, in 2023. There was a very specific time frame, and Jews and Christians are different. We come together to make one body, but it is the Jew who becomes a Christian and not the other way around. So, Rick, that's the last question I'm going to take from you on these issues. I hope um, maybe the Holy Spirit will raise something in your heart. Here's sort of a difficult one. Uh, hi, Pastor Owen. I have a dilemma that I'm hoping you can guide me through. My husband has started a men's, a men's Bible group once a week. His group has been growing, and he is passionate about sharing the truth of God's Word. However, that men's group turned into a co-ed group about two to three months ago. So now I'm noticing I'm more reluctant about him going to these groups. I don't go to these groups because I have to stay home to be with our kids and newborn. I have become extremely... Um, I lost my place because I can't see. Um, I've become extremely insecure since this change in his group, worrying about what could happen. 
I understand how the enemy works, and I don't think that accepting women in the group was a wise or godly decision. There are single men and single women, some couples, unmarried and married couples. There are also some married men whose spouses do not attend the group. I think it's a lot of room for the enemy to come in and try to destroy what's happening. To be honest, an opening for the enemy to try and destroy marriages through affairs, not just my marriage either, parenthetically, she writes. My husband never asked me prior to allowing women into the group of what I felt about it. Uh, When I first uh, found it, it was through a picture on social media where I saw women. Uh, Being completely transparent, I felt very hurt and betrayed. In the past, I've done women's groups, and in one specific occasion, a man had to attend uh, due to the theme of the group itself, and I immediately asked my husband to take lead of this group because I was not going to take headship over a man, and I wasn't wasn't going to do anything in ministry uh, with someone of the opposite sex without my husband present. I just wish he would have considered me the same way. Now the question, sorry for so long. How can I, in a way that is loving and gentle, talk to my husband about this? How do I ensure that this is coming from a place of being spiritually wise and not insecure or jealous, uh, jealousy of the flesh? And how could he uh, be able to go back on his word on letting women in the group uh, to now going back to men only? Uh, I'm going to be really direct with you, and, and uh, I think this is important. You've got a husband that loves God's word. You've got a husband that evidently seems to have been called by God to teach it. Uh, He's producing fruit for the kingdom of God, and you're letting your petty petty jealousy get in the way. Jealousy is not an act of the uh, fruit of the Spirit. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, jealousy, envy, uh, the insecurity that you're dealing with, all of those things are are issues um, of the flesh. And this is something that I think is really super important. As I was reading this the first time today, I just felt a a sense of urgency to tell you that you've got to kill this right now. Instead of thanking God for a husband that loves you, a husband that loves his word, you're allowing the enemy to steal from you. You're allowing him to rip you off when, in fact, your husband is doing what most wives would just die to have their husbands do. How could we say no if if we had a Bible study? Can you imagine you're at Calvary Chapel if I just decided one day, well, you know, I don't want Paula being comfortable, so I'm only going to have men in our church. If God wants to bring men and women to his Bible study and people are growing in the grace and knowledge of God and in the grace and knowledge of God's will for their lives, how could you possibly object to that? So your issue is yours. And this is flash, and this is the enemy who's pounding and pounding and pounding. And as long as you give him this opportunity, he's going to keep on pounding. This is a door that has to be closed. Because until it is, the enemy's going to use this to try to destroy the calling in your husband's life. Now, I want to make a couple of things very clear. There is no ministry where you can only do ministry with men and ministry with women. There's no difference, men and women. That's what God's Word says. When we open our Bibles, we open our doors, every hurting person ought to come. Now, clearly, we don't want women teaching men. And you acknowledge that in your email. But However, men need to teach women. You need to get used to it. This may be your husband being called by God, laying the foundation to be a pastor. What a wonderful blessing that would be for you and for your children. Now, do I think you ought to be involved in it? Of course I do. Uh, Paula has been virtually for 20 and a half years in the front row of every Bible study I've ever taught. I mean, if she's in town. Um, When people think of me, they think of Paul and vice versa. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, I think it's possible for you to find child care. Uh, I think it's possible for you to embrace what God is doing. Um, and so you go. But you do it as partners. And right now the enemy is doing everything he can to destroy any possible partnership. And I'm, I'm just telling you that if you don't deal with this, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on so very, very much. 
I would love, I would just love to have you follow up and say, you know what, I really let the Lord examine my heart. And this is insecurity. And this is jealousy. And none of those things are from the Lord. Now, let me just conjecture on something here. Maybe in the past, your husband has given you reasons to be insecure. But what you can see now is that God's doing a new work. Given the opportunity to do that, that new work and embrace it. And I can tell you firsthand that your husband not only needs your partnership, but he needs your support and he needs your encouragement. So don't start to resent it because there are women there. Join with him. Join with him. I want Paula, as I said earlier, in the front row every time I teach. Uh, It's just been who we are. That ought to be the approach so that everybody sees that you're partners. And the work that God is clearly doing, the work that you're somewhat excited about because you said you're excited to see him passionate and in love with the word again, um, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on it. I don't think your husband has any responsibility to say, you know what, our Bible study started to grow and there are women coming. I don't think that's a good th- a bad thing that he has to need your permission for. I think that's something that all of you ought to be really and truly excited about. So join with him in this. Hope that helps. I really do. I know it's not what you wanted to hear, but I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Jerry wants to know, what is a five-fold ministry? Jerry, a five-fold ministry um, is, is, is misunderstood. It's, it's usually um, connected with uh, extra charismatic groups uh, that really don't understand at all. Uh, what the fivefold ministry uh, is all about. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11. It says, It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be... So the reference they're making is, we have a church out of apostles. No, there's no church has apostles. Not in the sense that Paul was an apostle or James or Peter or John or any of the others were apostles. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that being the foundation of the church. Uh, And the Greek language is very clear. The foundation has already been laid and the church is being built. The other area, they're talking about the, the, the prophets. There are no prophets, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the of the early church. And in the early church, um, there were uh, both New Testament prophets uh, and apostles. That's, that's how God built the church. Evangelists, Philip the Evangelist, is a good example from the book of Acts. Uh, he had four daughters who were prophetesses. Um, evangelists, that's an important gift that God gave to the church. And then the other gift, the, the, the pastors and teachers, that's really one gift in the Greek. A pastor has to be a teacher. Um, um, it's possibly a teacher without being a pastor, having a pastor's heart. But but in the, the language here, it's one gift. So it's really a fourfold ministry. And typically what happens in a situation like this is they want to point to the fact that we're an official church or we're a, a, a righteous church. We have apostles and we have prophets. And that demonstrates their lack of knowledge about what the ministry really is going to be about. So it's, it's usually charismatic excess, uh, and it has no basis at all in understanding the word. So that's what a five-fold uh, five ministry really is. Um, David wants to know, what is your response to the Pope allowing priests to bless same-sex marriages? Um, David, I just read the newest article on that today, uh, and and I'll say what I say every time. Um, Don't expect... Sorry, I'm still coughing a little bit. 
don't expect unbelievers to believe the Bible. It's that simple. Um, this is what you would expect from unbelievers. This is the pressure in the world. And this is simply um, throwing our faith away. Um, instead of agreeing with Christ, we're agreeing with the people in the world. And whatever the motive is, that's between the Pope and the Lord. But, but uh, David, he needs to get saved because he's not. He's not a born-again believer. And even as I say that, uh, people get angry. Of course he's saved. He's His holiness, the Pope, he's not. And this is just more proof of it. We've seen this from this Pope over and over and over and over, sliding farther and farther into um, liberality in terms of how to deal with the Scriptures. They simply don't take the word at face value. Don't get upset. Don't expect anything else. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Thank you for putting up with my voice. I just didn't want to miss another day today. Here's a question from William. He said, Pastor Ron, is a two-state solution in Israel possible, and would it bring peace? William, the timing of your question um, is perfect. Paula was reading to me uh, this morning out of Leviticus, and and God says, this is my land. I'm going to do with it what I want. So no, a two-state solution in Israel is not possible. God will never let that happen. God gave the the land to Israel, to his people, and God's not going to let them give it away. Now, the two-state solution is what negotiation creates. You know, we want to find a way to make everybody happy. I was a car dealer before I got saved, and, and I used to think, I can negotiate the Middle East crisis. I can negotiate anything. But, but the one thing that people forget is they're fighting God. The land doesn't belong to Israel. The land belongs to God. And because it belongs to God, only God determines what can be done with it. And he's simply not going to allow Israel or any brokers like the United States or other nations come in. And and, and, and we've been trying for decades, my whole lifetime, to, to strike a peace based on negotiation. And it never works. So, no, it's not possible. And it will not bring peace. William, the only thing that's going to bring peace in the Middle East is when the Prince of Peace returns. So, you know, all of this hand-wrangling and, and fretting about what we're going to do about uh, Gaza and the West Bank and um, whether it's Hamas or the PLO, um, God's got this under control. We are hurtling toward the very last hours of the very last days. And the only real solution for peace is the Prince of Peace. And Jesus is coming soon. So beyond that, there is no possibility of a two-state solution in Israel, William. Um, He's simply not going to let them give away his land. Thank you. Gary says, will there ever be a temple in Jerusalem with the Muslim temple already there? Should Christians support financially a temple rebuilding effort? Um, Gary, I don't think we as believers ought to support financially a temple rebuilding effort. I think in these last days, all of our resources, and when I say all of our resources, I literally mean all of our resources need to be spent in in proclaiming the word of God. Um, So, um, no, we shouldn't support financially a temple rebuilding effort. It's a very popular cause, and uh, there are the Temple Mount faithful groups that are are gathering supplies even as we speak. 
Uh, but the reality is the timing is in the hands of God. Now, relative to your question, Gary, about will there ever be a temple in Jerusalem, the answer is clearly yes. What's going to happen, and this, I believe, will happen right after the rapture of the church. Uh, the man that we call the Antichrist will come into a position of prominence, and he will um, do some measuring, and he's going to find out that the, the, the original temple foundation, the mount for Solomon's temple, is just outside the Muslim temple that already exists there. And because of that, he's going to come up with a solution. The solution is you Muslims can have your temple and Jews, you can have your temple. And he's going to be hailed as the greatest man of peace that's ever lived. Um, Jesus talked about it when people are saying peace and safety, be aware, be on guard. Uh, and so he's going to allow that temple to be reconstructed. It will be done with supernatural speed um, and it will set the stage for the Antichrist's ascension into a place of power and prominence. So, um, no, Gary, our focus needs to be on Jesus Christ, on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to every person who's living and breathing. Um, God's got Israel under control. We need to support Israel. We need to pray for Israel. Uh, But our job as the church is certainly different. Thank you for the question, Gary. Appreciate it very, very much. Joseph says, Pastor Ron, why are you so confident of a pre-tribulation rapture? Um, Joseph, I'm confident because that's what the Bible teaches. It is literally impossible for God to pour out his wrath. And make no mistake, that's what the uh, great tribulation is. It is the wrath of God being poured out on a world that's rejected Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, and it's easy to demonstrate that scripturally, if that's the time of Jacob's distress, Jacob's trouble, then it is impossible for God to pour out his wrath on those of us who believe in Jesus Christ because he's not angry with us. We haven't rejected Jesus Christ. Our sins are as white as snow. And because His righteousness has been given to us. He cannot judge. Genesis chapters 18 and 19, very important. When Jesus showed up with the destroying angels about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, because Abraham was his friend, he told Abraham what he was going to do. And Abraham looked at him and said, Will the righteous judge of all the earth destroy the righteous with the wicked? And the answer was no, and there was a long negotiation that that occurred. And if I can find 40 righteous, 30 righteous, all the way down, if I can find 10 righteous, then I will not destroy him. Later, when the destroying angels snatched Lot, the Greek Septuagint, the word is literally the harpazo, that's the Greek word, They snatched him away from the scene because he said, I cannot do anything while you're here. Now, Lot may not have looked righteous to us, Joseph, but we know the New Testament says he was a righteous man who was vexed in his spirit by all of the sin around him. And so the reality is he couldn't do anything. Why? Because God cannot destroy the righteous with the wicked. And when the great tribulation begins, it is God's anger, God's wrath against a Christ-rejecting world, a world completely given over to evil. And that's what judgment is all about. And it's impossible, Joseph, for you and for me to be judged because our sins have been wiped away. Paul, writing to the churches in Thessalonica, said, For we're not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. So it's just impossible. There is, uh, you know, people say, well, you know, there are good points for both. There, there's not a single Bible verse that would indicate that there is a mid-trib, a pre-wrath, or a post-tribulation uh, rapture of the church. It's not. It's simply um, a, a bad hermeneutics. It's bad um, um, dividing the word of God. There's only one possibility, and that's God's going to save us from the hour of trial that's going to come upon those who are in the world. That's Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. 
So I hope that helps. Here's a question from Mario. He says, when being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, what is our role in the process? Is it God doing all the work or do we work as well? The answer to your question, Mario, is yes. God does all the work. It's God who both works to do and to will in us. But we're also told in Philippians chapter 2 that we're to work out. Thank God not work for, but work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So, yes, we participate in the sanctification process. God sets us apart. That's what sanctification means. We're set apart for his purposes and for Him glory, his glory. And because we're set apart, then our response to that privilege is to pursue personal holiness. So, yeah, God does all the work. He's the initiative. He provides the power and the resources that we can walk in holiness. But we've got to provide the partnership. God won't force us to do things. But when we walk pursuing personal holiness, Jesus said that we're to aim for perfection. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And then, and then we think, well, nobody can be perfect. But Jesus aimed for perfection. The Apostle Paul echoes that sentiment in his epistles. So we're to aim for perfection. And when we do that, when we get up in the morning, Mario, and say, Jesus, today, your will, not my will be done. That's what partnership is. So that's our part. And then the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and he does all all of the work. He provides the ability to say no to sin and temptation. He provides the desire. And one of the things I tell the Lord virtually every morning is, Lord, I can't even want to do the right thing on my own. But I want to please you. And so he provides the power to be able to do that. So that's what sanctification is. is a day-by-day process of being more and more like Jesus each and every day. And my role, uh, Mario, your role in that process is simply to report for duty every morning. Jesus, what about me and what about today? And when you do that, you'll experience the power of God flowing upon you and then through you. And in that process, um, you'll see that God is really doing a great, great work. Thank you, Mario. Angela says, can you explain the difference biblically between pastors and elders? Um, yeah, I can. I think, Angela, it's it's uh, um, not as difficult as we make it. Uh, if you look in the New Testament, and Paul talks about appointing elders in the churches. Uh, that is the role that we would call a pastor. Um, overseers, one translation says, um, it, it's, it's uh, the person in charge of the church, the under-shepherd. And, and so elders in that particular case, uh, they are the ones who we would call pastors. Now, here's the problem, Angela. In our world and cultures change, uh, we have laws. If we want to incorporate and churches want to incorporate, um, then we need to have boards of directors or we need to have ruling elders, those kind of things. And so to distinguish between what I do as the pastor and what an elder does, we make that distinction. I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, and I have a board of elders. Now, what elders do here at our church is they do the things that pastors do um, uh, from a, a little different perspective. They teach the word. They're all involved in ministry. Their heart is for the people. They have the pastor's heart for the people. Uh, but their role is different as a ruling elder or a board member than it would be as a pastor. Uh, Angela, in our church, and I'll just use ours as an example, I have a staff of pastors, and we also have a board of elders, and they have different functions. The pastors are hands-on with the people. I was just talking to our producer here before the program, and he was talking about how sometimes our hearts are so broken because of all of the pain in people's lives. Well, that's really a pastor's heart. You know, if you're a pastor, your your heart one moment is just rejoicing because you get good news. The next moment, your heart is broken because somebody's life is falling apart and it breaks your heart. That's the pastor's heart. 
in each and every one of us. That's the the heart that you hear in the Apostle Paul's letters. You know, he refers to himself as uh, as being like a mother and a father. I love that. It just you know, uh, uh, Paula is Mama Paula. I'm I'm Papa Ron or Pastor Ron, and um, you know it, it is a family situation. And that that pastor's heart cannot be um, uh, avoided. I mean, you know, we like to isolate ourselves from pain. It's impossible to do when God has poured out His love into your heart for the people that He is allowed you the privilege of ministering to. Uh, the elders in our church, they, they make decisions along uh, with me and form the direction of the church and and cover sort of all the legal basis. So that is the difference. Angela, there is a new, and I don't know if this is the genesis of your question or not, but um, uh, there, there's sort of a new trend. Uh, people don't want pastors, so they'll have teaching elders in the church. Every church needs a pastor. Every church needs a pastor. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say that is the most vital need that the church has. Somebody with God's heart, somebody who's going to teach him God's word, and somebody who's going to live a life as an example uh, that others can see. So um, uh, the the trend uh, not to have pastors is really a problem people have with Uh, being accountable. So, Angela, thank you very, very much. Um, Anna, or Anna, says in Revelation chapter 8, why is there silence in heaven for half an hour? Um, Anna, I think the the answer is it's just the, the, the broken heart of God. This is judgment that's being poured out in the world. This is the great tribulation and and, and the, the, the awful consequence coming to bear of rejecting Jesus Christ, the price really for sin. And um, I just think uh, the silence is indicative of God's broken heart. It's almost like God says, shh, shh. Almost like you can't bear to hear any more pain. But that's, I think, the setting for the silence uh, in in um, in Revelation chapter eight, it's just a, a, a an absolutely devastated heart of God. Isaiah chapter twenty eight says the judgment is a strange work for God. Uh, it's not something that He wants to do. Um, Jesus says all judgment has been given to me by my Father in heaven, but judgment is not what He wants to do. Grace is what He wants to do. And the people won't let him. And I think this is just absolute mourning and silence, sort of a, a, a holy reverential fear of God, uh, but at the same time, uh, an indication that God's heart is really and truly broken. Thank you. I appreciate the question, Anna. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Oliver. He says, there is a contradiction between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Satan induced David to take the census, or God did it, which is true. Uh, Oliver, there's no contradiction. Remember that Satan is... Sorry for the cough break. Satan is God's servant. Now, he's not a willing servant, for sure. But um, Satan, remember, could not approach David. Uh, unless God gave him permission to do so. So it's just simply saying two different things. Now, I think this is going to be helpful. When you're reading um, the the difference between Second Samuel uh, or Four Chronicles, and by the way, this works for, for, for the kings, uh, First and Second Kings as well. Um, we've got sort of the history of the kings from the perspective of the earth. In Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, what we see is the perspective changing from heaven. So it's God looking down. And Satan uh, was given a blessing, a permission by God to, uh, to provoke David to take this census. Clearly it was in David's heart. And, and the Lord, uh, uh, David was having some problems with ego. What he was doing, by the way, was counting his strength instead of depending on the Lord. And giving God credit for all the wonderful victories that he had, David was basically saying, um, let's see how strong I am. 
I've built this army. And even Joab said, don't, don't do such a thing. And, and uh, Joab sort of held back on him. Um, but Satan was permitted by God to incite David to take the census. Uh, so it's not a contradiction at all. It's just a different perspective. From the earth, uh, it would look like um, uh, David did it. From Chronicles' perspective, uh, God was the one who was in control and gave him the freedom to do that with David. By the way, I personally think, and people disagree with me here, but I think that was David's worst sin. He responded to it really well, but I think that was David's worst sin. Here's a question from Marty. Romans says all Israel will be saved, yet many Jews are not saved, so what's the meaning of this? Um, It's a play on words, Marty. Israel means governed by God. And so um, when when he says not all Israel is Israel in, in the book of Romans, and this is in chapters 9 to 11 that you're referring to, all Israel will be saved, all true Israel will be saved, those who are governed by God, those whose hearts are right uh, for the Lord or who are or at least legitimately seeking the Lord. They will be governed by God. Uh, but then he says not all Israel is Israel, so clearly he's referring not to all Jews individually. I think one of the things, Marty, that we really need to focus on when we're looking at passages of Scripture like this is um, the, the, the difference between the nation Israel, to whom God has made these great and glorious unconditional promises, and to individual Jews who still need to be born again in order to get to heaven. And we conflate the two. You know, we say, well, Israel, that means Jews are God's chosen people. Well, that's right, they're God's chosen people, but not all Jews are Israel. Paul talks about a circumcision not of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. And those Jews who are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, Zechariah talks about Jesus appearing in the sky, and they're going to look, where did you get these wounds? He's going to say, I got these wounds in the house of my friends. And there's going to be weeping and wailing as never before. And the reason is because they're going to realize that we missed their Messiah. We missed him. We rejected him. We're responsible for all of this calamity that's come upon us. But that's certainly not going to be all Israel. Let me be a little more specific, Marty. In Zechariah, it indicates that one-third of the Jews who are alive when Jesus appears, they will prove themselves to be Israel, governed by God. Two-thirds are going to continue in their hard-hearted rejection of Jesus Christ. And the reality is that more will not be saved than will be saved. So um, all true Israel, governed by God, will be saved. But it's also true, Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel, and we need to keep that in view as well. You know, one of the things that we I, I get criticized for in this program from time to time is, is uh, I'll say, Jews need Jesus. And there are people, no, Jews don't need Jesus. They've got a different covenant. If Jews don't need Jesus, then every single word the Apostle Paul read, wrote makes no sense at all. Romans chapter 9, the first four or five verses. He gave him his place in heaven if only his brothers, the Jews, would believe. Jews need Jesus. Judas Iscariot was a Jew. Jesus said it would be better for him never to have been born. He was the son of perdition from the beginning. Annas and Caiaphas, those who ordered Jesus' murder. They don't go to heaven because they're Jews. They were enemies of God. So it's very, very important. Thank you, Marty. Good question. This will be the last question of the day, I think. This is an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor, do you think God will ever add more books to the Bible? No, no, no. A thousand times no. Uh, We've got the full, complete Word of God. Uh, Anything that we subtract from it or add to it, uh, is is anathema. And so the reality, Anonymous, is that we will never, ever get any more books of the Bible. Um, on this program, we get questions about, well, what about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Barnabas and, and other uh, non-canonical books? Um, you know, they're, 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 they have some value as historical um, um, literature, but they're not written by God. Our canon of Scripture is completely closed. Jesus said, 
I've told you everything. Because that's what a friend does. He gives everything that we need. And, and the Bible that we have, 66 books, written by 40, author, 40 different authors over 1,500 or so years, completely internally consistent. That's the book, that was, or the 66 books, written by God. The Spirit of God pushing the pens of men. So no, there will never be uh, any additions to our Bible. We don't need any more. And I don't know about you, Anonymous, but I'm looking forward to, uh, I'm a guy that loves the Word. I love teaching the Word. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to love hearing Jesus teach the Word. Can you imagine the insights that He's going to provide for us? The questions that we had, the things that we didn't understand. We can imagine a little bit because the road to Emmaus disciples weren't our hearts burning within us as he expounded the scriptures to us. So, nope, the Bible is what we've got. We need nothing else, and that, that'll work. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it very, very much. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.